Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. We should take the conversation forward sure. and we really talk about the healthcare opportunity and uh, not sort of going deep into the healthcare space because we have to cover quite a few aspects here. Uh, I think uh, so. Taking a segue from what sort of Satish spoke about the healthcare and the pharma opportunity and how he's seeing the seeing that sort of pan out in the pandemic. Arohit, I want to sort of bring you in. What the kind of trend that you are picking, especially in the healthcare and the pharma space and the investment side? Yeah. Right. Right. Sure. You know, as as uh, Satish uh, pointed out, you see, healthcare, uh, as the phrase, the term is used, is an umbrella word. You know, it encompasses within itself a number of uh, segments which are diverse, complex, with each having their own specific issues, challenges, and growth drivers. and covid's uh, dislocational impact on uh, the sector is actually reflective of this segmentation so for example you know when we look at the year that has gone by you know most of the hospitals you know op- were operating at 50 60% capacity uh, there was a high margin elective procedures were and still are not being carried out that in turn has also impacted the procurement of high end medical devices by hospitals which saw a decline and diagnostic services uh, were mostly they were swamped with uh, you know uh, covid and uh, other infectious diseases related testing on the other hand you know when we look at segments like pharma that showed a lot of promise and is going to uh, continue to do so uh, for reasons that um, satish pointed out you know there is this uh, continued efforts to shift from china particularly for manufacturing apis for which the government has also started uh, giving uh, incentives uh, for uh, under the make in india program through its uh, pli schemes then we saw biotech companies joining uh, the efforts to discover drugs and vaccines uh, for covid and there was a huge uh, revenue growth for a consumer wellness um, a, a consumer health and wellness products such as sanitizers pp kits and protective gears and this is actually reflected in, to some extent in the pe investments that were made in the sector so whilst uh, you know in absolute terms in the first three quarters of 2020 uh, investment in healthcare fell by um, almost 12.5% this decline was concentrated in hospitals medical devices and clinics and diagnostic services whereas pharma biotech and consumer health segments actually saw increased fund inflow now so far as the opportunities that are there you know satish has already talked about you know the yawning gap in uh, infrastructure you know and uh, you know the uh, we all know that almost 70% of the hospital beds in india are uh, going to be provided by the private sector in which there is a lot of scope for and requirement indeed you know for a p investments one uh, or actually two uh, segments within the uh, healthcare sector where i see a lot of opportunities and where i see scope also for a companies moving up the value chain you know which is what you talked about uh, you know happening and uh, as a result of uh, this covid pandemic and also in some sense a sort of a natural progression is that what i am saying is that the covid pandemic has opened up the field of medical technology telemedicine and virtual health you know which came into their own in the last uh, year or so and are moving center stage so 
businesses which are engaged in the modernization of healthcare with wide use of telemedicine and virtual uh, healthcare and associated technologies is one area where i feel there will be significant opportunities for key players in the sector now in the mature economies you know of uh, western europe and you know uh, the us healthcare companies with strong tech focus and components historically have not only been valued higher but they have provided very high returns on investment also so both as you know in terms of the ebitda multiples um, and also in terms of the irrs they have done very well and i feel that the structural factors are well suited for the growth of health tech in india you know first you know healthcare lags behind the other industries in technological penetration there is public funding deficits and pri uh, pricing pressure is going to incentivize companies to adopt technology to reduce costs digitization in my opinion can also be used to increase uh, compliance uh, monitoring of compliance in an increasingly complex regulatory environment and above all health tech companies are serving a rapidly growing but an underserved market now you know it is true that the health tech companies in india are early stage you know unlike their counterparts in the west and therefore you know one could say they are more attractive to vc investors than pe and that is true but i feel that therein lies the opportunity for those pe investors who can actually identify the maturing companies which have scalable products and services and can capture the significant uh, upsides uh, the disproportionate upsides that there will be for early movers so therefore actually those uh, pe players who have strong technology as well as healthcare sector expertise you know like uh, satishas in my view could be very are very well you know suited and cited to source and evaluate deals and and you know grab this opportunity now coming to the uh, point that satish made about medical devices you know like stents and uh, the like they also offer very good investment opportunities uh, you know uh, there is tremendous scope for import substitution in india 80% of the high end and high margin uh, medical devices are imported indian uh, companies are mostly engaged in the manufacture of low cost consumables and supplies now with the frugal low cost innovation uh, environment that india affords i feel that there is a tremendous opportunity uh, there is a tremendous scope for grabbing that opportunity as well and 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 mind you this medical devices segment is 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 uh, different from the uh, healthcare technology uh, uh, segment that i talked about because healthcare technology finds its applications um, as a support uh, throughout the healthcare uh, segments you know uh, healthcare delivery uh, hospital administration pharma and life sciences and to a large extent in medical devices as well so i feel that uh, these are the segments within healthcare which afford um, uh, uh, very good opportunities for nimble companies and you know uh, uh, investors who have a keen eye for it to move up the value chain rohit thanks for that uh, i think we spoke quite a bit about the healthcare as an opportunity we began our conversation about you know private equities of vintage year learnings portfolio management investment strategy 
Arthi gave us a broader view on how she looks at the pandemic, deal making across three broad structures. Uh, Rohit, you spoke about the fact that you know what the kind of lessons learned, what the private equity fund managers can draw lessons from the benign days of private equity. I think it's an interesting conversation. We're going deep and deeper into our larger question. I think it's very important to also ask and understand that how really has deal making changed from a legal perspective? You know, how has due diligence changed in the wake of pandemic? I think it's an interesting question to ask that you know how have private equity fund managers really been able to establish trust in a synthetic environment? You know, and I think Arthi, I wanted to begin that with you maybe because I remember you sort of referring to this that you know everything apparently is happening over Zoom, right? From your voting yeah. to board meetings. So how has this been for you? And then I would definitely want to get Rose, you know, Satish's viewpoint on this. Yeah. So. Um... It's been uh, challenging, interesting. I've done Zoom calls with close to, you know, uh, 40 people in a single meeting. And I think that's something that we did not uh, envisage even in, you know, the pre-pandemic world where everyone would need to fly into Bombay, uh, red-eye flights, get there, sit there for 10 hours. And, you know, clients would lock us up, um, not literally, but it's all, you know, uh, known for. Uh, Satish is smiling already. Lock us up in rooms and say no one's getting out, you know, till the deal is closed. And over the two, three days, there's a Stockholm syndrome and then the deal gets closed. Um, and we've not had those luxuries, right? So deal making has changed because there are 40 people on Zoom. Everyone's negotiating. All positions are open. So it's definitely been um, a significant lesson for uh, Indians just because culturally, you know, we all like to speak together. There's like a lot of emotion in deal making. Um, so I think the verbal sort of way of clearly expressing without having to be in the same room, but yet, you know, get everybody on the same page. I think we've all been significant uh, changes. And um, our associates and, you know, some of our younger colleagues have just been zapped at the level at which uh, uh, and the speed at which interactions have happened uh, because no one wants to be on Zoom for eight hours. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that that's been the most significant change also with international council, also in some transactions, right, across time zones. So we've all really matured, I think, as a legal industry and in how you do um, online deal closures. Mm, then you've also had the whole learning of saying, you know, how do you uh, sign a deal, you know, no touch uh, transactions because, you know, the in the beginning, uh, COVID was all surface transmission. So there's a lot of apprehension about how papers move across uh, cities, uh, places. Do you leave your papers for three days and no one touches it because the virus is going to stick to you? There were all sorts of concerns, right, when it began. And now, of course, it's like quite uh, different. And now we're like, there's a pandemic and a Zoom fatigue. Um, so, you know, so uh, executions are happening closer. Some have ventured to doing, you know, in-person closings. But that's just the fun part. I think from the um, technical part of uh, how deal making has changed, we're having to place a lot more calls to rep and warranty insurance providers. So before, you know, um, clients would say that's an unnecessary increase in cost to deal, to pay premium for that insurance. But to get, today, no one's thinking twice. They want to pay that premium because you don't have the flexibility to go and do that due diligence in person. Uh, no lawyer is available to go to, you know, um, uh, 
we did a deal in madhya pradesh and interior madhya pradesh nobody could go there right between state uh, lockdowns otherwise they would have insisted a jsa goes down to madhya pradesh to whatever village stay there and diligence but now we were happy that uh, clients could take a rep and warranty insurance and go ahead you know split the premium into it so significantly insurance has gone up uh, it's getting absorbed in the cost of uh, doing business second is there has been a significant uh, change in valuations um so previously you know there is just one line in your agreement that says pre money valuation is so much or enterprise value is so much this is your stake this is my stake and then you move on to you know the legal rights now there are two or three pages to an agreement that is dedicated to valuation and i'll tell you why or how without boring you too much with the legalese what we call lockbox mechanisms to a system of all post closing adjustments so you're coming into our uh, documentation what i mentioned two to three pages where we're really saying what is that post closing performance related pricing right which is a contingent price mechanism uh, which is like an earn out that is contingent on the um, target company achieving certain financial metrics uh, or targets during a specified period or the investors could say look i'm going to defer this payment to you till i see how you know your supply chain works out whether you're actually able to meet you know delivery of customer delivery to customers i mean how is your pnl really shaping up so the deferred payment of a portion of purchase price which is linked to a future contingency and here there's no end to this future contingency we're now on the second wave and we don't know where that contingency will actually end so it required very you know liberal uh collaboration between 40 unwilling people to write those two pages of what that future contingency is and how that valuation will actually get you know fructified um third valuation was also you know there's a significant retention or a hold back from the promoter usually saying we're going to hold this cash back because we're going to give this to you and you know it's a pandemic you might have a change of mind you might disappear to be an airtel super singer or whatever so in which case you know you want to hold back that cash so retention or holding back of cash became a prominent theme uh, to secure you know potential indemnity claims that these promoters would have um and for you know just the whole reconciliation between saying okay we agree to something now 6 months or 8 months down the line i want to reconcile how this business will actually pan out so that whole reconciliation process um and how that will actually be conducted during a pandemic who are these bankers who would come in who would do this fair valuation who would do a physical inspection of stock and whatever was needed how do you do a networking capital adjustment um without ever seeing the promoter or his premises um so parties were looking to negotiate these caps on adjustments to protect their interests so these were you know primarily uh our sort of painful joys uh during the entire process of writing these documents uh for these deals and uh, we didn't see a lot of this in some sectors which is largely digital and tech edtech online gaming uh fintech all of that you didn't find these problems these were more and more hardcore you know manufacturing healthcare uh telecom i leave geo out of it but uh, a lot of this you know really required a lot of negotiations and um just two more points i'll keep it short is uh, material adverse change we are of course all in a material adverse change but how did you define it um it was hotly debated uh, trying to lessen the ambiguity in how you draft these clauses um and how would you invoke these clauses also um you know a force majeure clause every 
common person who is not a lawyer, um, the most significant term they've learned in the pandemic is force major. Everyone's learned what that term means. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> right? What it includes, what it excludes, and all of that. Uh, so force major is hotly debated. And um, reps and warranties. Now, um, this is really, you know, just saying, you know, look, I'm a good person, trust in me, put the money in me. That's really a rep. And a warranty is when you say it all in a contract. So these reps and warranties became, again, extensive. Uh, they were as big as deal documents itself, running to several uh, hundreds of pages. And only because, you know, nobody knows about business continuity and operations. No one knows about solvency risk. No one knows about financial performance. Uh, of course, we don't have a banker on this call who will say they know all of it, but uh, most of it is from a legal documentation point. We don't know. And uh, how will the material contract you know, be performed or terminated? Will a government stimulus have an impact on these reps and warranties? Um, just, and what will be these materiality thresholds, qualifiers for all of these reps and warranties? These are all you know, really complex subjects that I think the legal community really uh, stretched their brain cells to figure out ways. And I think we're now post a year and 10, uh, three months, most of the law firms, our lawyers are reasonably comfortable in taking hard calls for clients on what should really be that, uh, you know, uh, Lakshman Rekha, we are drawing for them saying until that point, we are okay to underwrite the risk in the document. Beyond that, you know, we're not going to stand guarantee. So there has been a lot of maturity uh, in the legal market for deal making. And yeah. I mean, yeah, so I think Arthur was sort of pretty meaningful and insightful coming from you. And I could see Satish, you know, yeah. absolutely smiling gladly through the fun part when you were talking about the joyful pains which the legal industry had to go through. I think especially these are the people who put you through the entire turmoil of eight hours of Zoom calls. So it's on you now, Satish. Yeah. A lot of people are misled by seeing the suit serial, you know. They think it's all fancy like that and then you don't realize how horrible it is. <laughs> anyway, but it is fun. It's been a fantastic experience. Oh, no, no, it has been. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. No, let me just uh, maybe discuss other aspects other than just the agreement and the lawyers. And I think if, yeah, the, the deal making has come a long way. Um, and I think uh, one is in terms of um, how do you develop comfort with founders uh, if, it, if it's only through Zoom? Uh, it is a tough one. And I think uh, I can give you uh, at least the most recent deal that I closed, at least I had an advantage because it was in Bangalore. Nobody else could travel to Bangalore. I was, uh, we, we have an office in Bangalore, others don't. So I told you <laughs> an advantage. Right? Having said that, um, I think there have been several other companies which are in my pipeline. I'm trying to build relationship and it was all started on Zoom. Earlier, it would have been that I would have flown to Ahmedabad, that I would have flown to Hyderabad. Uh, now it's been fairly easy just in terms of setting up a Zoom meeting and uh, uh, having those conversations. Uh, what do I miss in that? I think I miss is that uh, Zoom meetings tend to be nicely bookended. Uh, you start <laughs> and you close. Uh, but I think when you met physically, there were many other things to it, right? You had a lunch together, then you had a conversation on how was your yeah. flight? Uh, did it get delayed? Who did you meet? Uh, I think that is missing. And I think people's calendar are so filled up now uh, that they it's very, very bookended. You get on, talk business and get out of the call. So yeah, uh, it, it is 
that is something that i miss uh, probably we should set that up i mean i'm sure that can be done on zoom too um so otherwise i think even the other deal making processes i think one is the comfort with the founder but otherwise even others i think it's shifted nicely we have had some uh, pharma investments where we had to do an operational diligence or a technical diligence i think uh, even during the tough times of travel we have managed to at least one day get someone but most other things which otherwise it would have been like a 10 15 day they sit at the plants observe many things and have those conversation but because of the way it is structured it was a one day travel plus everything else done uh, uh, remotely uh, would before this happened if would have if you had asked me as a hypothesis is this something that's possible i would have said no but i think necessity is uh, forces all of these to happen and i think that's uh, that's turned out well uh, but for us uh, because we are sector focused and because we work through companies from even we look at companies for a long time before we actually do the investment i think what has helped us to a certain extent is some of these companies we have already met once before uh, i know the new ones we are trying to build relationship uh, but at least the ones that we have consummated the deals now these are all deals where we had met the founder before so we at least we had had that relationship but to continue it on zoom is quite easy uh but i agree with arthi if we had to start and finish on zoom uh yeah it is uh, it is quite uh, difficult yeah i'm sure we uh, just hoping we can go to the normal times yes i think rohit wants to say something yes, yeah sir. yeah yeah just just wanted to add one thing you know in in one particular area of deal making uh, the pandemic has actually not disrupted it as much as one uh, might have you know thought it would and actually has led to a uh, you know a fair bit of efficiency as well and that is capital raising in the public markets you know uh, the 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 uh, the players there it's it's a small clubby world you know so i mean you know the, uh, the investment bankers you know the uh, auditors you know the lawyers it's the same set of people so so the working amongst them uh, a coordinating working amongst them has not been impacted uh, that adversely as in a situation or in a deal where you are building relationships with the members of the working group for the first time yeah. so actually in 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 public fundraising deals uh, a lot of efficiency has come in because because now you can do everything on zoom and you can even do uh, at least so far as the documentary diligence is concerned uh, on the uh, virtual uh, data rooms um, so 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 there a fair bit of efficiency has come in i mean i mean that's that's been my personal experience no yeah. true no it actually i will take it a little further it, i wouldn't say that it is uh, not affected or it's only efficiency i think it's become more far effective more than just yes. yeah. i think it plays out as if i had to do physical road shows right I yeah. might choose between okay, I'll do East Coast, I'll do West Coast, but I yeah. leave out everything else in between because there is a how much time do you spend? Do you take that flight? Do you spend that two days extra? All that. But now mm-hmm. it's just another one more Zoom call, two more Zoom calls. It's just been that you're open to investors, yeah. of course. Uh, so it's actually just efficiency. It's just become far more effective. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, and and you and, and you save and you save money as well. You save money and time. You know, traveling. So. So I'm sure at least there's some spaces and sectors that are profiteering from the pandemic, and we are seeing a lot of efficiency creeping in. I think we are sort of running very, very behind time and schedule here. I think the conversation is just so interesting and unraveling so many various aspects to this. I think it's a good point to perhaps 
talk about really the elephant in the room. We spoke about diligence in the deal making, deal structures, you know, how to establish trust in the synthetic environment, vintage year, learnings, portfolio management, structures, market dislocation, opportunities. Spoke about healthcare quite detail. How do you establish governance, for instance, in a synthetic environment? What has this pandemic meant in terms of the communication between the investor and the portfolio company? Have the lines of communication increased significantly? It also applies for the GP-LP relationship also. Have the LPs been more pro proactive meeting other GPs and perhaps more frequent? That is my first question. I think this entire narrative of the pandemic as we have been jolted out of a black swan blindness is also hinging upon the fact that, you know, how concerned we are for the environment. I definitely know that LPs are increasingly pressing in the investment charter that everything definitely need to be centered around ESG. I would sort of like to bring you, Rohit, in first and then go to Satish on sort of his, from a GP perspective. And Rohit, what you are seeing the trends in these two directions from the market at large. No, that's, that's, that's a very, very, you know, a topical issue. You see, uh, ESG uh, might, you know, seem like an esoteric uh, concept but it is fast moving from being just a normative good practice, uh, you know, uh, value uh, metrics to actually being incorporated in mainstream financial analysis. And it's all part of the evolution of a larger stakeholder capitalism, which is now recognizing that companies owe a duty beyond shareholder value maximization. And, uh, you know, in line with this trend, and uh, you talked about the heightened uh, standards imposed by LPs, the fund managers, you know, we are uh, seeing are on their part are assigning greater uh, weightage to ESG parameters, you know, in investment decision making, in managing risk appetite, and above all, you know, as a factor for generating long term and sustainable returns. And, you know, when you look at uh, those companies which, which they don't control, uh, it has become a handy tool for PE funds to engage uh, with the promoters on a different plane. Uh, indeed, you know, I'll give you an anecdotal experience um, uh, that I have seen at least in two instances where, you know, I've been I have advised uh, promoters in investments by PE investors where the promoters have actually uh, uh, told me to expressly build in uh, into the agreements uh, obligations on the part of the PE investors and their nominee directors to help institutionalize uh, the ESG culture in their companies. So this, uh, in some sense, is actually a positive development, and it's a two-way, uh, you know, uh, movement that we are seeing not only on the uh, investor side but also from the investing companies side, and. Very importantly, ESG makes for sound economics as well. You know, you know, case in point, and I was looking at your own data, uh, Mint's data, uh, Shrija, is that the Nifty uh, ESG index uh, has over a one to five year period as of October last year, surpassed the Nifty 50 by almost 200 basis points on a CAGR um, True, true. So, 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 so it is. It is a material factor now in the long-term prospect and sustainability of the business. Now, I am sure Satish will delve deeper into it. I will just quickly touch upon the regulations uh, on the ESG front in India. You know, historically in India, it only has been the G part of uh, ESG, which is governance, which has had a well-defined and regulated uh, objective standard and criteria. 
and here i am referring to the provisions on uh, corporate governance in the companies act now for the e and the s that is the environmental and the social norms uh, indian companies have not really had their performance tested against any measurable criteria until the passage of the companies act 2013 which uh, had uh, and which has um, a fair bit of provisions on uh, corporate uh, social responsibility and uh, the various rules that are made there under now those also have been amended from time to time and uh, recently they Uh, uh, there is a movement uh, to making them towards making them directional. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, towards making them mandatory rather than just being a set of normative standards. Then last month, just last month, at the end of uh, uh, March, uh, SEBI has expanded the scope of business responsibility reporting, which is mandatory for the top one uh, thousand listed companies. to include sustainability metrics as well now it is called the sr uh, report rather than the brr it is voluntary for fy22 and mandatory beginning fy23 so this non financial reporting in sebi's own words is lays emphasis on uh, quantifiable metrics across sectors and time periods and has been made much more granular from a pe investors perspective you know coming in into a company which let's say uh, i don't uh, control and is not listed i can very well rely on this and say uh, that you know why don't we use this as a ready reckoner for uh, enhanced esg governance and putting in place and institutionalizing that in my investing company and promoters i am sure will be very open to that so to sum up you know i feel that the greater awareness of esg and its incorporation into the regulatory framework is only going to have a positive impact on the industry i mean i feel that there is going to be a lesser need for fund managers to make arguable cases with the promoters of their investing companies to adopt esg standards and i am also Uh, very hopeful that this will lead to greater valuation enhancements of their companies at the time of exits now and i am stressing on the uh, companies where uh, the <clears throat> where a p investor is just a minority investor because that is where it becomes important when you because you need to convince uh, your um, promoter to adopt these standards now where uh, uh, a p investor is actually in control of a company has done a buyout transaction there the dynamics are different because there it is much more easier for uh, the investor to put in place uh, these uh, standards uh, without you know having the need to argue for both uh, the economic rationale behind it and also the uh, general uh, rational thing so i feel it's a very very positive development thanks for that uh, rohit uh, in terms of you know how esg is coming into mainstream finance and the fact that esg also makes for good economic sense i also sort of want to sort of bring you in satish here you know what are you seeing from as a gp perspective how is important is the esg conversation increasingly uh, one in your conversation with lps and second in your conversation with potential portfolio companies i'm sure Uh, no, very important. I have uh, not too much to add to what uh, Rohit said. He he almost covered the entire thing. Uh, but just to substantiate a few uh, points here, and I think we uh, we as a GP view this very important in the sense that I think we go far beyond uh, either uh, regulations or valuations or even in terms of LPs. Uh, we, in a sense, that we as a firm decided that uh, we want to be at the cutting edge of this. 
and mainly coming from giving even valuations i think we thought that valuation is more an indicator just if a company is more sustainable has the right thinking behind sustainability uh, we think that they will be just good performers in the market and when i say market i mean talking about their consumer product market and the way they function and their longevity of the organization so for us we view it even from a philosophy perspective this is something very important uh, and to that extent that even in companies where even if we are minority we have had a long relationship with the founder uh, we don't have too much doubts on the uh, promoters uh, governance uh, we still at least play that uh, can we actually evangelize this make the founder also see the importance of this and adopt this is something that we are uh, moving towards uh, to that extent even to commit ourselves as a firm uh, because even to say that we as a firm all of us have to commit to it and we have to take some steps to it we also became signatories to unpri uh, that itself gives us a framework in terms of it just gives us a holistic framework to go and have these conversations because earlier we used to do quite a bit of this but it was a lot on ehs and governance coming from the companies act and overall true governance uh, but esg being from the unpri uh, framework is a far far overall encompassing uh, sort of a framework helps us also in terms of actually look at all other improvements that we can make and actually have these conversation with founders i think increasingly all founders also are beginning to recognize uh, this uh, i think some through regulation some as they also see uh, in terms of how companies are viewed and uh, how they are revered by few investors or how they are uh, how some public market investors feel comfortable with a few companies just because they have good esg standards that itself makes it a very aspirable thing for most founders to reach out for Uh, even if they themselves already haven't done it uh, uh, so uh, to that extent it's a very very important uh, conversation it's moving in the right direction and just to add shrija to the other question that you asked in this one in this pandemic time have our conversations uh, outside of just the esg has a house our conversations panned out uh, i think it's it's increased on both counts both with our founders and also with uh, with our lps i would see that our uh, interactions have got more uh, because earlier even if we waited let's say um, uh, for a monthly meeting to actually physically go and have a conversation on something uh, i think now to set up individual zoom meetings and discuss many more things on a more frequent basis uh, we just see that we are more connected uh, maybe all of us at the back of our mind are feeling that maybe we are losing connect because i'm not going and meeting him uh, maybe we are all overcompensating that in terms of having many more virtual meetings uh, to compensate for that one uh, good quality physical meeting so somehow if i have to look back as you asked this question i think uh, interactions have increased uh, maybe because it is also more efficient to have these interactions now and similarly with uh, with also lps uh, i think because things are changing so much on the ground Uh, earlier it was almost like india has gained victory over covid and now we are at the worst end of covid so they are also very curious on we are reading these things with what's happening on the ground uh, so they are also extremely curious to speak and understand so to that extent even our interactions with the lps and when i say uh, earlier if it had happened only with uh, one partner or one managing partner or another partner who was involved uh, with the lp relationship Uh, now we actually see it's a little more broad based lps reach out even to other partners 
uh, even to just get a 360 degree in terms of what's happening on the ground uh, not so much so with just the firm but even what's happening on the ground what's happening on the different sectors so overall to answer your question in this times i think interactions uh, has increased a lot between the different stakeholders and shareholders it's much more than what it was before i think we had a lovely conversation here i think about one and a half hours of unraveling various aspects of private equity in the uncertain time and how resiliently it is emerging as an asset class which actually can assist in economic recovery uh you know i think before i get on to rapid fire if i would like to just request each sort of each one of you one quick remark like you know three sentences perhaps at the max you know one key learning or one quick key observation one key concluding remark what would that really be i can begin with you rohit get on to you arti and then with you satish yeah well you know uh, as uh, uh, charles dickens said it's the best of times and the worst of times and you know so there are uh, opportunities galore but one has to tread very cautiously and carefully and not get carried away uh, by you know this uh, the just the massive stockpile of gunpowder that you have dry powder and then start firing your cannons so if uh, used judiciously uh, you can really ride the waves for quite some time to come okay arti um i would say you know in the light of the health and of course humanitarian crisis we are currently facing despite that i think as a community we have not let this good crisis go to a waste sorry to say because the uh, business financial legal teams have all you know worked through a um, lot of uh, unprecedented uh, situations and deal closures have been uh, reached at a record speed so the nimbleness that has been demonstrated by the whole industry um has you know eventually will have a trickle down effect to economy and progress i think of the country as a whole and um, you know people being our primary asset with whom we deal with whether it's founders or uh, peers it has been heartening to see really the professionalism um, and on time delivery of services you know across the industry so that's been my primary lesson learned okay satish as of primary lesson i think is to uh, have to look back is to stay uh, disciplined and uh, in two cases right there are there are explosive opportunities that come your way and you yourself are surprised saying that wow uh, this is a great one and equally there are ones where you are completely bogged down in terms of how do we think about this in uh, such an adversity and i think in both times uh, it pays to be disciplined and the other one that i've learned is i think uh, how much of our experience you have how much of our distilled few mantras that you have i think these are times which teach you to question everything on first principles uh, there's so many changes and so many surprises that are thrown uh, i think uh, this teaches you saying you can't hold any mantra uh, even if you have strong views hold it lightly uh, you can question everything uh, on first principles and everything has to be uh, thought through here i think that's a biggest learning for me in this very very uncertain and fast changing uh, 12 15 months that we have seen okay so first principles thinking for you for rt it's about people at the center and for rohit it's really about you know not being swayed by the excesses and having a caution here now it's time for rapid fire i begin with you satish if you were to give me a deal which you saw in the recent times and you wish you would have done it 
Yeah, probably I'll take not recent times. There is a deal that I keep seeing multiple times, and I wish I'd done it. Was uh, probably by Jews. I've seen it since their maybe Series C or whatever, but I've uh, somehow not done it, and I think that's been a mistake. So that really is your anti-portfolio. And what are you Netflixing these days? Oh, multiple. It's it's mainly been on football. My son is a football fan, so we are like uh, devouring uh, all the Man City and all the Barca. uh once which are there on netflix okay are the same question for you arti one deal which perhaps some other legal firm law firm advised on and which perhaps you think you could have advised on actually it's a small deal but i like doing something in agriculture and i think i like the uh, kotara agro that just closed this year so it it was a small transaction but i think it's an interesting space uh, and i'd love to do agri deals uh this year apart from everything else we do netflixing uh, money heist <laughs> okay. uh rohit what about you one deal which has sort of uh, really left you overawed and perhaps you wish that you would have done that well you know the rgo deals uh, definitely <laughs> then that was a you know a, a series of deals you know arising out of one so that would have been uh, a very good one uh, although or, jsa was on it good ones ha huh? yes well one 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 part of it yes you know watching a uh, uh, number of uh, you know good history related period uh, shows on netflix so i've uh, watched uh, the, the latest one that i watched is uh, the rise of empires the the rise of the ottoman empire um, you know in which uh, there is uh, well that show focuses on uh, mehmet uh, uh, taking or uh, uh, de- de- defeating uh, constantine uh, to take over constantinople uh, and of course i watched the crown uh, so thank you everybody thank you for taking back your time with energy on saturday and get a very fruitful and enjoyable discussion until the time i see you next week bye and good luck and before we sign off i do hope you and yours are doing well and my best wishes to all of you thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you so much thank you so much thank you This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.